in the United States is the only country, one of two countries in the world, certainly the only industrialized country that does not give workers access to paid sick days. Sharon Block directs the Labor and Work-Life Program at Harvard Law School, which focuses on the world of work and its impacts on society. She has had a long career in public service, including eight years working for the Obama administration. Today on The Dive, in conversation with Zoya Saroy, she talks about the workers who had to choose between losing their jobs and being exposed to COVID-19 and why the system failed to protect them. Hi. How are you guys? Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Professor Block, first of all, thank you so much for, for joining us. I, I was very fascinated by the report that you've recently written, uh, the, the Clean Slate Project, where you've interviewed somewhat 80 experts on the issue of labor laws. And not only that, but you obviously are a professor who leads the program at the Harvard Law School, and you've spent eight years um, in uh, Obama's administration. So we really appreciate having you and uh, talking to us. Um, I want to start with the myth that the coronavirus has brought when it first hit a lot of people have referred to it as a great equalizer, something that wouldn't discriminate against race or class, um, gender, but that turned out to be completely false. In fact, um, the virus discriminated greatly. Could you just talk to us how you saw this discrimination in the workforce? Who was hit the hardest? Sure. Uh, yeah, no, it's a great question. And I certainly hope that nobody is saying that anymore because the statistics are so stark um, about who is most at risk um, with this pandemic. And, and, you know, obviously it's a complicated issue and I'm not a doctor, And but in terms of the racial disparities, especially, I think it's hard to deny that one aspect of this is who is being exposed to the virus. Um, and uh, the fact that we deemed certain workers to be essential who are um, primarily women and workers of color, um, you know, to go to work in grocery stores, in fast food restaurants, to drive um, public transportation at a time when the virus was running rampant, although it seems to be running rampant in much of the country again, um, you know, has to be a factor in having produced those racial disparities um, in terms of uh, the disproportionate number of people of color who are getting sick and sadly dying. You know, the way that I think of it is like, we called these people essential, but we treated them like they were disposable. Marie Long works the register and stock shelves at Dollar General in North Carolina. I kind of feel like I'm gonna get it because it's inevitable. But the minute people start walking in, the anxiety starts. We didn't sign up for this. Several workers at other stores have died from coronavirus, including 27-year-old Leilani Jordan, a supermarket greeter. I feel like essential lately just means exhausted and expendable. I don't feel essential. For the price they pay on the job. So 
because we when we talked about essential workers in the beginning we were confounding also doctors and nurses but a big portion of that um the people who are who were exposed to the virus not doctors and nurses they earn far less than that they work as grocery store clerks and pharmacies um driving uh delivery vans etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so in other words isolating from the coronavirus became an economic luxury right because these people didn't have the choice to follow the rules that many were following working from home uh, limiting exposure to people and the virus yeah and i'd go back to one thing you said i mean even within healthcare um, you know, there are a lot of low-wage workers who work in healthcare, who make hospitals run, you know, you know, they also, they were also very much hit by um, the exposure that came from those early days, especially in, um, in the healthcare setting where workers weren't being given um, personal protective equipment that they needed. Um, so they're sort of getting hit in all the different sectors of the economy that were deemed essential. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're, it, it's in part a function of being in these, um, being overrepresented in these essential sectors of the economy. It's also a function of not having access to paid sick days. You know, it, it's always remarkable to me. I mean, we've been taught in my career, I've been talking about this issue for years and years and years, but how many people who, you know, higher wage people don't understand how privileged they are to have paid sick days. And the United States is the, sometimes it depends on who you ask, the only country, one of two countries in the world, certainly the only industrialized country that does not give workers access to paid sick days. Everywhere else in the world, essentially, if you have a baby, if you get sick, if your family member gets sick, you get you can get paid to stay home. In this country, you can get fired. I mean, a, a large percentage of workers can be fired for staying home to take care of a sick child. Now that obviously that dynamic took over, took on a whole different dimension when you were talking about a highly infectious disease. Um, and, you know, Congress did, and I, I want to give, you know, give credit where credit is due, and the CARES Act did step up. Families First, our legislation secures paid leave for, with two weeks of paid sick leave and family and medical. And for the first time in 2020 in this country, we had a paid sick days mandate. It was limited. It's not enough, um, but at least it was something. But there are still far too many workers who didn't have access to paid sick days. So they're being forced to go in. They're being told they're essential. They have to go to work. And even if the virus, you know, struck them, struck their family, um, they're back in this situation of having to make a decision between getting a paycheck and taking care of their health. And that's just a situation nobody should be in. That's just wrong. Right. And and I was even reading that in scenarios where they claimed to be sick, they felt sick, they had been exposed to somebody who had the virus, their employer asked them to give proof, and you could hardly get a test. I mean, in, in the U.S., there was such a big shortage, so it was really an impossible um, scenario. 
They're making it look like it is a standard value of Americans. And we say to corporate greed, it will not stand today, it will not stand tomorrow, and it will not stand in the future. We've seen recently um, uh, workers and companies such as uh, Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods go on strikes. Uh, and the, going on strikes is not a usual thing in the U.S. This is not sort of compared to European culture, where you, you know, in France, universities strike for months on end. Um, is it because of what we're facing right now that the situation reached unprecedented sort of levels of misery? You know, it's an interesting phenomenon. So it's definitely true. We have a very different um culture around strikes in the United States, which I, I would say from my work, um, I would attribute it in large part to the fact that we have a very weak labor law. And so it's very different. The, the risk that you take in this country as a worker who goes out on strike in terms of whether you're going to be fired, whether you're going to be able to get your job back is very different than the risk that workers take in other countries where they just have more protection for acting collectively. Um, they're more likely to be in a union, certainly, than workers here, since we have such unbelievably um, low union density. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, um, I think it is born out of desperation, both in this moment, but also even in the preceding period of, you know, that we have an economy that it is just so clear to so many workers now that it is so out of balance, that it is so unfair. Um, that they are, you know, willing, even knowing how weak the laws are to protect them when they undertake that activity, that they were willing to do that. Now, again, where like where my own work comes in is is leads me to a concern, however, that that increased um, collective activity, collective action, will not necessarily lead to more unionization. So the formalization of that activity, because again, our legal structures are so um, ill-suited to the way our economy works today, to the context in which this activity is happening, that there's sort of not the right legal channels to, to make the most of that impulse to act collectively. So people go out into the streets, but then they can't join a union because it's so hard to join a union in this country because the law puts so many impediments to doing that. And so breaking it down, for example, taking a hypothetical scenario, if I'm working for company X in Cambridge and I want to join a union, how? what is the scenario where I would be allowed to do that? What is the exception to the rule? So to, to organize a union in the United States, you have to do it workplace by workplace. So, you know, much of the rest of the world, um, unions operate at a sectoral level. Right. Um, but here, you only have a right to organize your particular workplace, unless for some reason your employer agrees that it should be broader, but that just really very, very, very rarely happens. And so at the, at the outset, you're sort of trying to use this tool that that sort of constrains your ability to build power doesn't enhance your ability to build power. You then have to get the agreement of um, more than 50% of your coworkers. Um, and you have to do that in a context in which the law allows your employer to use all the sort of 
uh, soft coercive power of being the employer to wage a campaign to convince you and your coworkers not to vote for the union. Oh, so they could, they have a lot of power to exert influence. I mean, yes, you they know. They require that you sit in a meeting and listen to people tell you why you shouldn't join a union. They can, your, they can have your supervisor sit with you one-on-one -on -one and tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't join a union. Um, there's can just, they threaten to fire you? No, they can't explicitly threaten to fire right. you. There are very few workers who don't understand mm -hmm. <laughs> who signs their paycheck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, so they can they can communicate to you how how they would like this to come out, and you can draw your own conclusion. Um, and and the sad reality is, and I say this, it is sad for me, is I you know I was a member during the Obama administration for a while. I was a member of the National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal agency that enforces the right to to be able to join a union and, and bargain collectively. Even if your employer does walk up to you and say, you know what, I actually think you're trouble, and you're you know you're a union organizer, and so I want you out. I'm just gonna I'm gonna fire you. I'm gonna say why. The process to to um, enforce that right to not be treated that way is so cumbersome. Mm -hmm. You know, years later, maybe you'll get your job back. Well, yeah, what election will have happened? People are going to remember what the employer was able to do to you. So it's it's really just become an incredibly um, weak right, and and especially when you look at it in contrast to. Um, the law in, in many, many other parts of the world. Right. No, I know. I, I worked in Germany and people would tell me that you would have to do something illegal to get fired. <laughs> like that was the, that's the worker protection. But uh, so if you, if you uh, are not part of the union and you strike, like in this case, um, then the company does have the right to fire you quite easily, right? Um. You have the federal law does protect your right to engage in what's called concerted activity, mm -hmm. so to stand together with your coworkers, as long as what you are um, engaging in that activity over is related to your the terms of your job. Um, so it's a fairly narrow right. Um, but again, the problem is if you are fired. You know, the employer may not say the reason why because they don't actually have to give you a reason for why you're fired. And then you've got to go prove that it was because you walked out, you did whatever you did. Um, and you've got to do it through this very cumbersome process. So uh, the, the sort of weakness of the remedy in the system really undermines the, the protection of the right, even if you technically have that right to be free from that kind of retaliation because as far as i understand right the law gives you the right to or requires employers to provide a safe and healthy working space and in these cases where the owned warehouses where you just you know it was clearly not the case and that took the uh, attention of legislators is that something that you know you'll see the results way past down the road that, you know, they can't make any swift action or is it just because it was a high profile 
case that they, you know, it, it drew them in. Um, power politicians and legislators pulled in in this case. Sure. So what's going on in this particular context is is interesting and and obviously from my point of view infuriating. So employers, you're absolutely right. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, which is federal legislation, guarantees workers the right to a safe and healthful workplace. It makes it the employer's responsibility to provide that that um, workplace free from hazards. The problem, one of the big problems right now is that the federal government is not telling employers what that entails. Uh, okay. They have put out sort of voluntary guidance and tips of the day and suggestions, recommendations on how to make a workplace safe in the context of a pandemic. But workers can't enforce suggestions and recommendations. Right. And so this whole apparatus within the federal government that is supposed to protect them and hold their employers accountable for that failure mm -hmm. is failing them. And so that's in part why you're seeing these walkouts, because that, you know, again, coming back to like the desperation, like that's what they have. Um, to try to get attention, to put pressure on the employers that way, because the federal regulators have really um, have taken a pass and have told workers, "You're on your essentially, you're on your own." Um, you know, we have a Secretary of Labor who um, is regularly photographed and includes these photographs on the DOL website and in their like social media, showing him while he's working meeting with other people who are working mm -hmm. without masks, masks on and standing shoulder to shoulder. Mm -hmm. So that tells you sort of where this, where this administration is in terms of providing that kind of accountability um, right. for employers to, to um, provide a safe workplace. Now, there are some states that have taken over this role themselves. Um, and they are beginning to react and to and to provide sort of pandemic specific um, protections for workers. But you know we're just still seeing way too many workers getting sick on the job. Right. So it's really it's it's a really really heartbreaking situation. The new year means the start of a new labor law in California meant to protect more than a million freelance and so-called gig economy workers. They do jobs like pet sitting, cleaning, and ride share and delivery driving. Uh, supporters of the law, known as AB5, say it pushes companies to recognize contractors as employees, giving them access to benefits. But Uber and Postmates are suing the state, hoping to stop the new law. And an even less protected sector of workers is the gig economy. Um, contractual workers. Can you just give us a, a kind of a brief overview of what they're facing? Sure. So most of our labor and employment laws in this country are built around the concept of protecting employees. Those are the, the, the word that's used in the statute. You know, this was, these statutes for the most part were written at a time where that really covered the broad spectrum of people who worked. People had an employer-employee relationship with the people who paid them money for providing services. Um, business models have become much more complex. We can have a different conversation about why that is, if it's purposely to evade 
responsibility under these laws or not, but the reality is that there are a lot of workers, especially in the gig sector, it's called the gig sector, who are treated as independent contractors and not as employees. And so when they're deemed to be independent contractors, that takes them out of the protection of all these statutes uh, because those statutes exclude independent contractors. Now there's a very um, serious debate over, you know, you notice they didn't say they are independent contractors, they are treated as independent contractors. For many of them, there is a, a very real question as to whether they are employees who are being what we call, it's not a phrase I like, but misclassified. You know, they're being treated as independent contractors when they really are employees and should be covered under these statutes. We're seeing in California last year passed their own state law to say, we're, we're, we're not kidding. These are employees. We don't care what the federal statutes say. For the purpose of state law, we are going to make clear that these people are employees and have protections under state law. The companies are pushing back. They're suing. They're trying to get ballot measures to undo the law. And California is particularly intertwined in this case because um, big tech companies such as Google, I think Google is something that up to 50% of their, uh, of the people that they employ are contract workers. And so the tech sector is highly intertwined in this issue. Yeah, but but the California legislature said we're drawing a line. We're prote- we're going to protect these workers, um, and so that's still playing out. Um, we did also see um, for the first time, and again, like with paid leave, it wasn't enough. It's not permanent, but we did see for the first time um, Congress extend some unemployment benefits to workers who are being treated as independent contractors. So, you know, maybe that's a very small step in the right direction. And I also found it interesting that um, when we're talking about the contract workers, when you break down or look into it, they are rarely, you know, well-educated white men. They are women, people of color, um, people who need the flexibility work-wise, especially a lot of women who are taking care of children. And so when you discriminator when you keep that sector at a highly disadvantageous position you also discriminate against you know these groups and um in your report you put forth that as a way for uh workers to have more um say in their or better conditions in their life they also need to have more decision making power yeah it's really remarkable and to me this really sums up um, the uh, really makes the case that our law is really failing, um, not just that it's not optimal. <laughs> so the union density in this country, so the, per- the percentage of workers who are in unions in this country now is lower than it was before they had a federally protected right to join unions. Um, and so that wow. just goes to me that there's something profoundly wrong with the with the structures that we've built to enable workers to build power. And at the same time, the labor laws were also something that was a a, a Roosevelt-era invention and that is no longer relevant to, uh, or 
a lot of parts of it are outdated and no longer speak to the economic structures, organizational structures that, that we have right now, right? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of factors into why the law has become so weak. So clearly the economy has changed a lot. The sort of mix of sectors in our economy has changed and our law is not well suited for sort of where um, the economy has moved into service sector jobs. Um, we've also had just an incredible concentration of economic and political power in corporations. Um, and so we really need more levers for workers to be able to exercise power to countervail that power. Um, employers have also had more than 80 years of experience of figuring out how to circumvent the law and undermine the law, and they've been able to do that. Um, so there, there are a lot of there are a lot of factors, all of which to me point to a, a need to overhaul the law. But I do think it's important to to come back to sort of where you started with that the National Labor Relations Act is a Roosevelt era law because it was enacted in part to um, as part of the way to get the economy working again after the depression. Premise of of the NLRA and, and encouraging unionization was that a better allocation of power and therefore resources from capital to labor was good for the economy and was good for society. And that principle seems to me to be very relevant now, even if the particular structures of the NLRA um, uh, you know, no longer fit that impetus and that premise, I think, really fits today. And because when uh, people or a lot of people, when they think of closing the, the wage gap, they think of taxes. But if you pay people, if you give them better pay and better conditions, then that is a way without having to increase taxes to directly impact uh, uh, their lives. Um, I mean, I, my 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 economist friends tell me that like pre-distributive policies can be more efficient, can be a more efficient way to address these problems right. than than taxes, right? Which is what you you know after the money's been distributed and then you try to reallocate it that way. But if you can pay people more from the outset, you know, there's less friction in that system. Right. Right. Um, and how do you see this playing out, this current situation that we're finding ourselves in with the upcoming elections? Do you think that, you know, somebody has has put uh, uh, work and thought into drawing up comprehensive plans uh, for the any of the candidates? I mean, they're, you know, U.S. elections go on for, for a long time, so... Yeah, now we saw a really remarkable change in the kind of labor policy that, at least within the Democratic primaries that the candidates put forward. Um, I'm pretty confident that the word sectoral bargaining had never been said out loud in a, in a presidential election and had never appeared, like, you know, in somebody's um, policy document. And Actually, Cory Booker said the word sectoral bargaining during one of the debates, which really mm -hmm. almost made me fall off my chair when I heard <laughs> it. I think we have a serious problem in our country with corporate consolidation. And you see the evidence of that 
in how dignity is being stripped from labor. And we have people that work full-time jobs and still can't uh, make a living wage. But I think 10 of the Democratic candidates, including, including Vice President Biden, had some element of moving to sectoral bargaining to, you know, with an idea of, of really thinking creatively and innovatively and boldly about how to empower workers in their labor policy. And so, you know, and that was before the sort of most recent um, events that have brought these issues even more to the fore. Um, so I think it, there is, it feels like it is a moment where at least for s some elected officials, things are changing. And you say that this uh, sectoral bargaining is important because, and this is my understanding of it, so feel free to correct me anytime. Uh, now, sort of, if I work for Amazon, I my union and my demands are directly uh, related to the company X that I'm working for. And they, of course, don't have any, they, they don't have the incentives to, to take in what I'm uh, putting forth. But if it's, if it involves a whole industry, then that, then they would come to the conclusion, okay, fine. But everybody who is my competitor is doing it also. Everybody is paying X, Y, Z per hour. So, it's not going to put me at a worse off position because I'm I'm treating my uh, workers better, right? Yeah, the shorthand is it takes wages out of competition. Yeah, and, and you know maybe I'm naive. I've never run a business. I will fully admit, but it seems to me if you believe in the quality of your product or service, you believe in the quality of your workforce, of your management skills, you should want to compete on that basis. And not on your, uh, not on the basis of your ability to drive down labor costs and pay your workers as little as possible. Right, and I read that uh, while you were working for the Obama administration, um, you took this initiative to go around the country. I, I was just wondering what was sort of the lasting impression that you had from the experience. Hey, that's a great question. Yeah, we did this. Um, we did. We called it the White House Summit on Worker Voice. Um, which really kicked off that effort. Um, we spent a whole day at the White House bringing people from all over the country together to talk about strategies for enhancing worker voice. The pre President Obama actually participated in the events of the day twice, which is very unusual. He kicked us off in the morning and we came back in the afternoon to do a town hall. And it was really after that, and it was really his ideas. He said, you know what, this was great. <laughs> you know when you like take a breath and you finish so maybe like for you after exams and you're like <sighs> and somebody comes imagine somebody comes to you and says you know you did so well on that exam I want you to go on the, around the country and take a bunch more exams and you're like oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really what happened is he said he wanted us to do to do more of them and so we did go um, we did go to different part. we tried to go to different parts of the country we went to the Midwest the South the West um and New York, Mid Atlantic, whatever the New York is, it's its own thing. Um and and the takeaway really was there was such a hunger for people to want to talk about these issues from both workers who were in unions, but also workers who weren't in unions and maybe never even thought about um 
that they had the kind of job where they would be in a union, but but had this sense that they needed they needed something to to give them more of a voice in how things were going. Um, that they were tired of sitting on the sidelines of the economy and the political system. Um, and so there was just great in every one we did. There was just great energy. Mm -hmm. um, and we always, um, they were not events where we just like put people in seats and, and brought people up to talk at them. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was great fun and, and inspiring. And one, um, not necessarily misconception, but like, yeah, an, an assumption you had about America's working life conditions, culture, etc., that was, was thrown off when, during this experience. Oh, that's a good question. Um, maybe that that people are too busy to care about these issues. I mean, again, we would always try to include, find ways to have working people. Um, be able to come and share their experience, um, which is challenging, right? Because people, especially in low-wage jobs, like they just have a lot going on. But again, mm -hmm. the hunger was so strong that we would just hear these stories of people really, um, really going to great lengths to be able to to join us. I mean, we had we had somebody who joined us at the White House summit. Who worked in um, in an auto factory, not in a, not one of the American car companies, you know, which are mostly which are all unionized, but from one of the transplant companies. Um, and you know, he didn't know if he was going to have a job when he came back. Um, yeah. so if, if if he had he had reason to be concerned, um, and, but he was there. He showed up because he wanted to tell his story about um, about how what the union organizing campaign had been like in his plant and how hard it had been and how much um, you know how much it meant to him to be a part of this collective fight um, and yeah and that that's that was just really moving like those of us who get paid to do this kind of work and we yeah. show up to these things and it's like you forget what what so many people have to be have to put on the line and the risk they take just to try to stand up for themselves so. right it's just i i don't know if labor or the term needs rebranding but it's the the most important one of the key five most important issues that that the country is facing and yet i feel like some it it gets uh underrepresented um, and so, and so thank you so much for talking to us and your, thanks for um, asking. Okay. So much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for me too. Thanks for joining us on the dive. This episode was produced by Zoya Saroy, Paloma Strelitz and Jad Olenov. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share it on social media and we welcome feedback and guest ideas. Write to us at ideas at the dive dot media.